Hi, my name is Aviva, and I will be have a, having a conversation with Ethan for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Communal Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is December 12th, um, and it's being recorded in Chinatown. Hi. Hi. Could you introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Ethan Roberts. I'm uh, currently a student at Union Theological Seminary. I'm in my last year. Uh, I'm also a chaplain intern at Rikers Island, um, and I uh, most specifically provide care for incarcerated transgender folks. And where were you born? I was born in Conroe, Texas. Um, I didn't stay there for very long, though, by like, I think four-ish we had moved up to New York State, um, outside of the Buffalo area in the country. And how was that? Um, I don't really remember much of it. Like, my earliest memories uh, are of New York, so I don't, yeah, I don't recall, but uh, I'm glad I left when I did, because I definitely had an accent when I left, and I lost it, and I was, I didn't want to hold on to it. So I was, I'm glad that I didn't end up staying there personally, but I also just think it would have been really hard to be queer there. So for a lot of reasons, I'm like very thankful that I ended up leaving that space. Cause I don't, I think it would have been, yeah, it would have been hard. Mm. And what um, parts of your upbringing, I don't know if, if are there ways that you c could identify at some part, point that you had like, an affinity towards queerness or transness or were there models for you at that time no there definitely weren't any models and it's interesting because m the way that i sort of realized my gender was sort of through my sexuality which i don't think is like uncommon um but a lot of that was because like i just didn't have words like I, I didn't know that you could like mess with your gender in any way um so like for me the first time that that was like even a possibility was uh, my very straight roommates brought me to a drag, like a drag show for the first time. And I was a DD because I was, I didn't drink at the time. I was very like Christian girl, naive. Um, and I saw a drag king and I was like, holy shit, like, how do I, like, how do I do that? Um, and I didn't even really know what that was because I didn't know if they, like if they were a dyke or if they were, trying to be a boy and like if they were trying to be a boy like what is that called you know I didn't really understand um so I have some like years as a lesbian which is me like exploring that um which is like a weird thing to think about because now I feel something closer to like gay boy so I, I feel like I've I've had a lot of different queer identities on my road to to figuring out who I am now um in terms of growing up it like it felt like there was never any signs but like looking back I think there were certain things that just got ignored because they weren't um they weren't like the sort of like stereotypical like I feel like I was born this way experiences so like I apparently tried to pee standing up a lot as, as a child and my mom my mom just thought I was having accidents and was like unaware for a while that I was like actually just trying to pee standing up. Um, so like to me that that feels like a that feels like a very obvious thing, um, but it was ignored. And then there were just like 
like common things like I was just a tomboy and like I didn't want to I was really uncomfortable in dresses like I avoided dressing up as much as possible but it didn't sort of like debilitate me like I was uncomfortable doing it but like would do it if I had to and just sort of be grumpy about it um so it it didn't it didn't like click to me that I could have other options or like there was there was like a deeper meaning behind the discomfort i just thought like i was a tomboy like there are a lot of tomboys in my family uh and they grew out of it and then i think at some point the growing out of it like wasn't happening and then i think that became more difficult so Mm. how did religion shape your early identity a lot um so my my mom is just a very religious person, um, but she's a single mom. She's a waitress, and so she, we couldn't actually go to church a lot of Sundays. Uh, so we would go to youth group every Wednesday, and occasionally she would have someone take me to church, but, like, she was working. Um, but sort of, like, the fear of the Bible was there, but it was also, like, this book she never read. So it was very weird, and it was it was clearly a, like, she was socialized with this culture and context and then she just sort of like did that to me um but I was like a really like existential child so it was not like a great thing for me because I and you know maybe it was related to my gender in this moment I don't that that wasn't what I felt like was happening I just remember feeling like off and like my only way to like put language to this sort of like out of body experience was God. And so for a really long time, I was just like, why, like, why am I unhappy? Like, why, why do I view the world in these ways that make me like angry at God? And God be sort of became this like processing lens and like not in like a good way. Uh, And then it was like, in many ways, like sort of very toxic theology um, that I was being fed. And so, even though, like, when I was when I was a kid, it wasn't about gender or sexuality. I was very aware that those were, like, not okay. Um, and then um, when I was about 18, I had just turned 18, I ended up um, getting involved with a very, like, cultic group um, that started to use religion in, like, very abusive ways. Like, more Can you explosive. name that? Uh, yeah, they were called YFT. Uh, so it was, like... A little acting troupe this this really w- rich white lady um, and where was that i just want to get an understanding yeah it was in buffalo okay. um well this this lady was actually from like orchard park and so she lived in like a mansion in orchard park and um she decided to like write plays and like put them on at different churches um and uh i got sort of roped into it and it was pretty shitty um so she sort of um right after i turned 18 she sort of convinced me to run away to her house and it took me like how did you meet her like how did that through church she she came to the church that i was going to with my mom at the time um and got involved with their youth group to be like hey we want you to audition for these you know these things or be a part of this um and i was really into acting in high school so i decided to do it and i you know became friends with a lot of people in there and it didn't feel it didn't feel bad at first, if that makes sense. Um, part of it is because she came in through my church, which was like something I trusted at the time. Um, and what type of church was that? At that time, it was a Mennonite church, so like 
just above Amish, basically. Um, Can you? Sorry, just this. No, um, you're good. Slow you down. Like, what are some of the tenets of being Mennonite? Just yeah. So I don't. I don't like super recall because we bopped around a lot. So okay. I spent most of my time as a Baptist, and then we moved. And after a year or two, my mom was like, "I gotta get. I gotta find a new church." Um, and then she found this church, and it was in the town she grew up in so she like wanted to go to it again um but just like very conservative like women were expected to become wives um there were not everyone but there was like a portion of folks who were even more conservative than the church so they would like wear like dresses like yeah i was gonna say i feel like they have a a costume or a uniform yeah well these do they have the bonnets or is that i think some do the they were a little bit more I want to say that they were, like, a little bit more, like, liberal, but, like, I just sort of mean that aesthetically. So, like, it didn't look like a bunch of Amish people. Like, everyone drove cars and, like, went to school and, like, wore in clothes, but, or mostly regular clothes, but it was very much, like, gender roles were very much enforced. That Like, youth group things would often be split up by gender. So, like, the boys are doing this, the girls are doing this, um everyone kind of paired off like and I I think actually a lot of them ended up a couple of them ended up getting married and so like there was a lot of this like little community feeling um some there was I remember like there was one family that I think did really abide by like the like just not like the uniform but just like really long dresses and like those sort of things um but they weren't just, like, always in dress. You know, like, girls were allowed to wear pants. But that I remember that sort of being, like, a thing that was talked about, though. It was like, yeah, girls can wear pants, but... Or, like, like, like we could wear pants now, but, like, our parents wouldn't have been able to. So it was very... Mm. Like, the pants thing was new. Mm. That sort of yeah, was what it felt. Yeah, liberal Mennonites. Yeah, so <laughs> it, was, it was weird. And, like, what was unfortunate is, like, this... Uh, this... This... Um lady came to our church and sort of like brought some theology with her so it started with her like influencing the youth group teaching so instead of just sort of doing the very generic youth group stuff we started like learning about the gifts so like speaking in tongues and like laying hands on people um what are some of the ones dreams sight like seeing angels and demons uh healing and so we started to like focus on these things and that that was pushing this very like evangelical non-denominational line which is sort of what i would i would identify the like culty group as was like non-denominational um and so we went from her to sort of influencing youth group to being like come to rehearsals and join this thing and then we did um, and then my home life was getting more and more unstable. And then shortly after my like graduation party, uh, my my car had broken down at my friend's house. It was just I had just bought it, and so I was upset about it. My mom was upset about it. We're broke, so we were arguing, and the argument got bad. And I had called this woman to be like, I, you know, I don't know how to deal with my mom anymore. Like, what do I do? And she just was like, pack your bags. I'm going to come get you at like seven in the morning. Mm -hmm. And she like waited for my mom to leave. And then like she pulled in and I left. And she, I I realized now that it was, it was a very intentional, like she waited till I literally just turned 18. So like my mom couldn't 
like call the cops on her or mm-hmm. me. And um, did you tell your mom of this plan or? No, I didn't. I didn't. We were like not speaking um, that night. So I just, she, cause she like woke me. She like picked me up from my friend's house and like brought me home. And then like a few hours went by and I had like fallen asleep and she like woke me up and like dragged me to the car to like go back to my car to get something out of it. And she was just like acting very erratic in a way that like made me really anxious. And so I just was like, I'm staying in my room. Um, and then, yeah, the next, you know, the next morning I got picked up and she like brought me to her house and the police ended up coming. It was a whole thing. They couldn't do anything cause I was 18 and I, you know, I was like, no, I don't want to go back. Um, but it was like really, you know, it was really shitty. Like my mom and I don't have a great relationship, um, but I don't think that was the answer necessarily. Um, mm. And then obviously I ended up sort of stuck there for like six months, and so it. Wow! And did you have any other understanding of her before coming to her house beyond just the acting stuff? And she was very like motherly, very welcoming, and definitely like made me feel like I belonged to something when I I didn't feel like I belonged anywhere. Um, like even within, within regards to like my own family. And so I was, I was very like, (laughs) I had a very like susceptible to cult personality. (laughs) So it probably wasn't like a difficult process. Um, I had found out later though, that it was kind of shocking that, that like she chose me or I don't really know how to word that. Um, she just apparently had been going around to a lot of black churches and like doing this with like specifically little black children and just sort of like collecting them. She didn't move them all into their house. And what race is she? A rich rich white lady. (laughs) Just like very, like she lives, she lived like near a Buffalo Bills football player. Like I just remember like there was a level of like class, um, like power manipulation happening there where she sort of like picked me up from like my single mother's house and like brought me to like this mansion and I like stayed I stayed in the closet because like one of her closets was big enough to like put a bed in you know like so it was just like this very is a very kind of just like weird experience and like I was in the closet and the person in the room um was this black boy from Buffalo who was also in the group uh, she had sort of convinced his mom to like let him move in to go to the school out there because it, it was a much better school than Buffalo. So he was in there. I was in the closet, like literally and figuratively, and it was just like a weird. It was a very weird experience. Um, and how many kids or eighteen year olds lived in that house? It was just us two, and the other the other kid wasn't eighteen yet. He was like sixteen, I think, because he was he had moved there to go to high school because their high school was much better, um, and he would like leave on the weekends and like go home or like do sort of like do his own thing with his own family or friends. But uh, it got a little weird, and I, I remember there being some tension at times with like this woman and that kid's mom because she'd be like he needs to be here like she's like okay well i'm taking my son (laughs) like i'm taking my son to church on sunday sorry like or you know whatever it was and so it was it was clear that she like wanted a little bit more control over that situation than she had but because that family wasn't as sort of like broken as my family it was i think harder and they were like no this is a great opportunity for him but like don't be mistaken that he has a home here you know it's like not the same situation um, I didn't, I didn't have that. So I, it was just like, 
uh, yeah, it was, it was super weird. And it was also weird because, like, I viewed, after a certain point, I, you know, I viewed her as this sort of abusive person. But, like, watching how her husband treated her, like, being in her home and seeing that was weird because her husband was, like, not really great to her. Um, which was just, like, a weird thing to witness when I felt like this woman was the person who had control over me. But then... Like this, her husband. There's another kind of patriarchal yeah, force. Yeah, yeah. So it was like really weird. Um, and did you have a relationship with the other kid that was in the house? Yeah, we were really good friends. Um, yeah, we were like really, really good friends. Like there, like some nights we would, I would sneak out of my closet and we would sleep in bed together. And like we were, we were really close. He was like my brother. Um, and she had two kids. So she had, I think, like a 14 or 15 year old girl. And like a maybe like a sixteen year old boy, um, and so like they each had their own rooms, and then me and Desmond shared the like spare room. And during that time, you were acting, or no? I mean, by that point, no. I was. I had just graduated, and um, like a month, a month after I had moved in there. Um, my godson was born and so my godson's mother was the director of this group uh and she got pregnant and she had chris and sort of at that time whether it was because my life was sort of upside down and this baby was born i sort of stopped acting and would like go to rehearsals because you just had to you were in the house um but i would mostly just like hang out with christopher backstage so like his mom could like direct and then um by the end of that summer i had applied to go to erie community college or something because it was just near their house and i had graduated and i didn't know what i was going to do um and so then i started doing that and then like by by like that i was only there for a semester by that december i had gotten into monroe community college and i moved out of that house and into my own like dorm at monroe and that was sort of the start of me just like getting away from all of the toxic things but was this pre-internet like what around what time period was this what do you mean i'm just like did you have the internet while you yeah i had the internet but i was i was so sheltered like i like i don't even think i watched a horror movie until i was like 15 or 16 and it was like saw and i didn't seek out others you know i was like i was like a very very sheltered part of the like church thing also was like like you weren't really supposed to listen to like secular music um so like i had access to it but i wasn't like looking i wasn't looking for anything new because i i those things are presented to me as like demonic and so my mental health got like pretty bad while living in that space because i like, I was being made to feel like there was something wrong with my faith because I wasn't showing signs of gifts. And so then there was a time period where I was, like, pretending to have gifts because they made me feel like I should have been, like, I should have been able to do some new things by now, basically. And if, if you weren't able to, like, speak in tongues or do these things, it was because something was, like, wrong with you, like, your faith. And so I was, like... If they think that, like... What, Can like, you speak in tongues alone? Like, does it have to be witnessed, these gifts? Um, so, I don't really know how to answer that. And only because, like, there is so much trauma around it for me. Like, I think 
you can speak it alone, absolutely. And, like, if someone's witnessing it, they're not going to know what you're, you know, like, the sort of notion behind it is it's like a divine language between you and God. I've heard stories that some people's tongues are actual other languages that, like, they didn't know they could speak. So, like, they go up in tongues and all of a sudden they're, like, speaking Russian or Italian. And so I guess you could translate that. But for the most part, it's, like, not a real language. It's just, like babbling um and i don't want to like i don't want to be disrespectful to that because i think i don't not i don't not believe in it um and i think it's a really important part of some people's faith practice but i know it was it was being used very manipulatively um against me and they were sort of like why you know like why can't you do this yet or like what you know why like you're reading your Bible every day, you're praying, like you're not listening to secular music, like what is, what's in the way, like what's going on. Um, and and so, that was a metric of your devotion. Is that like you, these gifts? Yeah. Like yeah. what, are, like what is God going to call you to do with your life? And like, I, I think I had, we had many prophets like speak over us and prophets are just like people with the gift of prophecy. They weren't like, I feel like people hear prophet and cult and think of something else. And that's not really what I mean. Um, we would like go to a church service where someone was like speaking words over people. And so I, I had the like word spoken over me that I was supposed to be an intercessor. Um, What's with, that word mean? It sort of means you like pray on behalf of people. So um, like during your own personal worship, you may be praying for something and you don't know like why you're praying for it or who you're praying for. And it could be for someone like, across the world that you've never met before or something right or that sort of it could also be for someone you know like if you know they're going through something you like pray on behalf of them is that word related to ancestor i don't think so. i don't know how it's spelled i'm just like i don't think ancestor. so okay it's different uh i i don't know though because like so so much of this um this is like hard because it was like a white lady doing this to me but like she was very much, like, preying on, like, charismatic black, like, evangelical, non-denominational church practices. And I think that, like, in the right context, like, most of these things can be healthy forms of religion. Um, but she was just kind of, like, taking what made sense. And I feel like in sort of building her own theology like it, it was just like very disjointed often so have you theorized what her motivation was in, in doing this honestly I, I honestly just think that she is just kind of delusional I don't you know I don't and it's hard because she like like my relationship with my mom was really not good and in many ways I needed to not be in that house anymore for sure um I don't know if leaving my mom's house could have happened in any less of a traumatic way, if that makes sense. But also, um, she was the adult and I was just, just barely 18. Um, and in hindsight, it, it was very obvious that I was like a kid and like not a great situation, but there were better ways to go about that. And so, yeah, it's, it's definitely like, and how did that impact your religiosity once you left her house? Oh, I just, like, questioned everything. Like, which, again, I, like I said, I was a very existential, just, like, child. Um, and where do you think that came from? I don't know. I really don't know because nobody in my family is like that. Um, 
like my 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 family is like like my biological family on my mother's side is just like not great um most of them support trump most of them like don't question anything and um just believe things for no real logical reason like just uh and i'm not just like saying that because my politics are so different like the way that they arrive it's just like poor people supporting things that don't even benefit them and that's sort of what my family does often um they don't question anything either so like i was you know like a lot of my aunts and uncles were constantly like you know something's wrong with birth you know birth name um here like they're they're always moody they're always sad they're always depressed like what like why are they always like pushing back on it you know like i was always just this like little storm cloud because i i wasn't just like jesus is jesus is the answer and i'm like okay jesus is the answer and people are starving and um and it was it was weird like i didn't know my dad but my, my dad is native american and so my family's hella racist and so they like um mostly just my mom i think because i don't really know if the rest of my family even ever met or knew my dad but my mom would just like say really fucked up racial things to me growing up like and so at a very early age i had to be like like stop fucking saying this word like my mom used to call me the n-word or like make jokes about that and like i'm there's no you know like i wasn't any darker than i am right now um so there it was just like a i'm not black like you're using the wrong slur for me to begin with um she would like joke and call me just like things like redskin sometimes or just like think whatever she could like try to associate with being Native American. Um, but mostly she would just be like, she would call me like um, a mix of the N word and like uh, piglet. So that, that was just like her favorite thing. Um, and there was just a point where it like sort of forced me to become like hyper aware of it at a certain point. Like she didn't know what she was saying, but she was like saying it to a kid who was like actively learning about slavery. And so I would like hear these things and be like, like what I was like, you stop saying that. Like you just like, people don't talk like this anymore. You can't say these things Like you're going to hurt people. Like you're hurting me. And so like, it was just like a weird relationship to have because like I didn't I hadn't I was I was a child like I didn't know what I was talking about I could just feel in my body that like what you were doing was fucked up and I think a lot of those things like um yeah like it, it brought up a lot of like pushback in my personality and then sort of like once that <laughs> once that personality started to develop I was just like I'm gonna keep pushing back on all of these things and um and like some weird way I feel like it was my queerness, but I, I also feel weird saying that cause I was so unaware at the time. Like I was so averse to that. And I remember for so long thinking like, man, at least I am not gay. Like that was like in church. I was just like, I thought that so often. And like for a really long time, I believed it. Um, I was just like, yeah, man, like, thank goodness. I like boys. Like this would be like, I don't know what those people are going to do. Like, I remember feeling that so many times. And then there was a point where I was like, oh, shit. Like, what? Like, now what am I going to do? Um, when was that? Um, I think it was that drag show, honestly. Um, and by that point, I had went and I was uh, I was already like, I think maybe these people aren't going to go to hell. And so I didn't I didn't have this like 
visceral reaction to going to the club because there was a time where like you would have had to like we would have had to like pray before we entered into you know just like the den of sin basically um and i didn't have that reaction going i was like very nervous but i like saw i saw that performer their name was wins um and it was like it was at a club called tilt in rochester which i don't even think is open anymore but um I was just like, oh my goodness, like, how do I, how do I figure that out? And then I was just like, oh fuck, like, this definitely, like, I, I didn't even, in that moment, it wasn't like, oh, I know that I want to have sex with women as much as I was like, I know that this has other implications and I'm just like not processing it right now. Cause I was just like in awe. Um, and so I, yeah, I would probably say that, which was just before I turned 19, I think. And that was like sort of the first time I was like, what and like i think like a month after that happened i became really good friends oddly enough with my ra um and he was a gay man and he was like you're gay <laughs> like he just kind of sat me down and was like hey you're absolutely gay like we should figure this out and he just he sort of helped me process that him and his boyfriend at the time and i was like oh shit yeah i think i'm gay um and it just sort of, like, snowballed. But it, it was, like, never felt finished. And I sort of realized now why. But at the time, I was like, okay, I'm gay. Like, why doesn't this feel like it's it? And so then I thought that I was, like, like I was femme attracted to dykes, right? So I, like, I think I went on a date with this girl who was a dyke. And um, then I realized I just wanted to be her. I didn't, like, actually want to, like, hook up with her. And so then I was like, now I just don't know. Like, I didn't know, like, what the fuck was going on. And so it just, it was a lot of sort of fumbling about in um, some, like, awkward lesbian years, for sure. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. Mm. And as much as you were formed through actively kind of defining yourself against, like, things that you were brought up with mm -hmm. in some ways... Are there, like, tenants that you still, like, really hold on to in terms of, like, a heaven and a hell and believing in God? Like, what are the things that are still integral to the, your belief system? Yeah. Um, most days I don't believe in hell, which is, like, a big accomplishment for me. Uh, I've done a lot of work to try to, like, separate that. Honestly, in many ways, this is, this is what seminary was for me. I feel like that's a horrible reason to come to seminary, but it was, like, really expensive therapy for me because I was just, like, I have to, like, I have to figure this out for myself. Like, my, no one in my family actually reads the book and as in the Bible and has any idea what it's saying. So I was like, I'm going to go do it. Like, I'm going to go read the book, get all of the historical information, the context, because, like, it's super important and everybody leaves that out. Um, and so I, like, came here or came to, you know, came, moved to New York City and, like, came to seminary to, like, figure that out. And I, in that, like, for me, it was a very academic experience of, like, okay, like, I just my first year was like really great and really exciting because I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm like tearing apart my theology. The second year was really hard for me. Um, cause I tore apart my theology, but I didn't rebuild it. And my seminary isn't that great at that. They're like really good at being like, actually, this is all lie and toxic, but then they don't really like reconstruct with you. Um, and so last year was like a really hard, year for me um because 
I definitely think I sort of use spiritual bypassing to like just like get through so much of my life and once and can you define that for the audience yeah yeah sorry uh so just sort of being like like this is god's will just sort of like using religion in a way that isn't um what isn't what i believe to be healthy and like like sort of using it to excuse your problems and so like um if I did something like fucked up or like still held on to a fucked up belief, it was just like, well, yeah, cause I don't want to go to hell or like, that's cause what, that's what God said. Or, you know, like a lot of people do it. Um, like my mom does it all the time where she'll be like, you know, I don't, I didn't need to make any more money. Like God always provided me with just, you know, exactly what I needed. Um, like that's not true. We were like really broke and really poor. My mom suffered a lot yeah. and worked really hard. And so she just sort of uses god to justify her her suffering as like a poor single mother and i think for her there's a lot of shame around that and for me there's a lot of pride when i say that because like we survived that we didn't do it perfectly but like we survived it um and for her it's like well you know i had exactly what i needed and it's like you could have used with like healthcare, (laughs) you know you could have used more doctor visits or you know like babysitters or you know a vacation you know what I mean whatever it was like uh so that's sort of what it was and I I think I used I used faith my faith in that way for a long time being like oh if this if this didn't happen like it was because it wasn't meant to be versus like I got fired because I'm trans or I got you know what I mean like real life things or like capital just like capitalism right like I didn't have words for any of those things so I was just like it's Jesus it's God and that was not healthy or helpful um and like not fair to myself or to you know to anyone else who does that honestly um I understand why people do it and I think it's like a touchy you can't always just like go in and like rip apart someone's coping mechanism, right? But little by little, that's what I had to change. And for me, becoming um, more political, like more radical, like that was very much like in tandem with my with my faith and it becoming healthy and um, useful in like real ways. Uh, I I would say like the thing that I held on to is just sort of conceptually god like i still believe in god very deeply and it's this one thing that i like through all of the bullshit and i have plenty of reasons to like at this point not believe in god or a god um but i do very much i don't really think that that god is a christian god anymore though um and i'm um i don't really know how to describe that and at this point i'm very much still um like at the moment i'm currently trying to begin exploring Judaism um and I'm, I'm very excited about that and a lot of my draw towards that is the lack of hell just like sort of inherent in their theology like there is no hell um it's also I struggle with Jesus as the messiah figure like I believe Jesus was a real person and I believe Jesus was probably a radical person of that time I'm not sure how I feel about Jesus being the messiah um and so uh, I also just something about um, sort of like Jewish theology is this notion of just like turning inward more than I feel like Christianity forces you to. Um, so I'm, I'm letting myself explore that. I am currently technically a member of the UCC Church, United Church of Christ at Riverside. Um, I don't go as often as I should. I still have a lot of 
anxiety and triggers and trauma around like organized formal religion. Um, and I'm really nervous for what that means as I explore, um, like potentially becoming Jewish or practicing Judaism. Uh, because I know that there's it means something totally different to be queer in that space. Um, also, my whole family is black, and it's a very white space, and so I have a lot of anxieties about like my sort of existential journey and like how that impacts the people around me, and like wanting to do things like church or if it becomes synagogue with my family, and realizing I have a black trans partner and I have a black godson and. These are not always safe spaces and can often lead to undue harm. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm sort of still like figuring that out, but sort of, yeah, broadly it's God. I guess I didn't, I didn't lose that, but uh, I lost a lot of the like makeshift walls that were put around it, uh, which mostly is a good thing, but also like totally still have bad days or I'm like I'm definitely going to hell like I'm just like oh. what does hell look like I don't even know like I guess when I think that I'm like flames come to mind but uh I don't actually think it would be something like flames I think if hell exists I imagine it to be something more like um have you seen the show the good place yeah like I, I think it would be some like psychological like mind fuckery like corporate that. dungeon yeah like you don't realize you're in hell for a really long time um and then you do they just like switch it around so you don't know yeah i like i don't i really don't know i just i know it's a place i don't want to be i know it's a place but yeah I, I don't really have like a specific like this is what i think hell is i just am like we can't go there uh and i totally wake up some days and i'm just like i'm the biggest faggot I know, and I'm absolutely going to go to hell for this, like 100%. Um, but most of the time that doesn't happen. Uh, and when it, when it does, I, I'm like pretty quickly able to be like, at least conscious of where it's coming from and like be like, okay, like it's annoying that this is going to be the loop in my head today, but like knowing that allows me to not give it power. And so uh, that's, that's helpful. Mm. Yeah. And, um, wow, I just lost my question. I'm going to pause it for a second. Hi. Um, my question that just came back to me was, mm -hmm. if you have other frameworks of support outside of a religious... Yeah, frame. absolutely. I had to. So, I mean, therapy, for my work at Rikers, I have supervision through my program at the Jewish Theological Seminary, um, my partner, and I have uh, specifically some friends who, uh, and this feels very important, but like don't believe in God that I like turn to in those moments. Um, and it's not because I don't trust people who do believe in God. I have plenty of those friends who I turn to as well. Um, uh, but sometimes I need someone to just give me like, like a secular opinion on like, uh, like a thought or, you know, whatever it is I'm struggling with. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think like therapy is obviously for me, most helpful, most important, I think. Um, and not just because of the re religion. Like, I just, I have experienced a lot of trauma in my life and, like, getting to process that um, and also identify, like, how it shows up in my work because I'm, I'm working with a lot of people who have been very traumatized um, and our traumas are not always the same and sometimes they are and that in those moments it can become, like, really hard to... Um, 
to do my work, especially because when I feel like triggered by like specific traumas, they are so often linked to faith for me. Um, and so if I'm like your chaplain in that moment, I can't devolve into like today I hate God, you know, which I think is a totally real thing. And I think it's, I think it's really healthy to, to just like be angry at God sometimes. Like I think I worry about people who don't actually ever get frustrated or angry with God. Um, so I don't think it's a bad thing, but I know in a moment as a caregiver, as a chaplain, it's not, it's not always, you know, I have to handle that appropriately. Uh, and, and like I do, sometimes I, I encourage folks to, to be like, to explore what could be like possible anger with the divine. Um, so like, I, I definitely, it, it serves a purpose, you know, when I like the trauma that I've experienced, I think allows me to tap into something that helps me be good at my job. But I also think it means I have a lot more counter-transference in those moments than someone who maybe hasn't experienced those specific traumas or triggers. Um, so, yeah. And what does your work look like at Rikers? Like what is an, a day going there look like? A lot of patience. So it's just getting there is, well, getting there takes a minute. It's like, three buses to get there uh and you get across the bridge you go through the perry building which is like where all visitors go to and all sort of employees who take the bus there go there um and then you have to wait for like a rikers bus to like take you to your facility um and because i'm only at rosie's rosie's is the facility i work at it's uh, rosie m singer and because i'm only there like 12 hours a week or so i don't get to have a non-escort badge so i have to have an escort which means i spend a lot of time just waiting for an escort because they don't care um they don't care how long you wait they don't care what you're there to do they just don't care and they especially do not care about the like specifically the trans unit that i'm like trying to get to um, and is rosie's it has a trans unit is it yeah does it have what else is it's it? a so it's a female facility um and it has two trans units um and when i say that uh they only house trans women so trans men are not they're just with general population with women um which sometimes is okay and oftentimes is really problematic and dangerous and um sort of overall unhelpful uh, so we're, we're really trying to work to get them a unit also. Uh, and that feels weird too. Like, let's just all like lock them up together. But in some regards, it is safer than like specifically trans men. Um, but Priya is like a really, so Priya is a prison rape elimination act. It's also like an, a department now at Rikers and Priya gets called a lot on trans people. Um, and I know, like, for trans men, it'll happen a lot. Um, so, like, people are sexual beings, and then, and while people are incarcerated, they're still sexual beings. And so there are times where romantic relationships happen. Um, there are a lot of queer people there, like, uh, specifically, like, lesbian folks there who... Um, have interesting relationships with trans men while they're there, and... I think that evokes a lot of feelings for them and maybe confusion and oftentimes leads to 
sort of fights or like love triangle situations and then Priya gets called and it's this much bigger deal because this is a trans person especially if they're a trans man and they pass really well um like if there's a fight that happens the fact that they look more masculine isn't helpful for them in those moments and uh can often incite more aggressive responses from COs. Um, the trans women are just sort of dealt with in, like, with disgust. Like, nobody wants to go near them, touch them, help them, you know, whatever. Um, so it's, it's a really frustrating thing to watch. And it's also hard because we, we as in trans people, but specifically incarcerated trans people there, don't get the privilege of, like, being flawed humans so they're in a really traumatic situation right like they're incarcerated whatever their case is um their life is on hold they're probably being misgendered um just sort of re-traumatized over and over while they're in there and then um they things like hormones will get messed up things like um therapy will get messed up surgery dates like i've i've gone in there and there have been folks who are like i have i have surgery in a month and i got locked up like no i'm not gonna get surgery like those are like really common things um yeah is that answer Mm, and so as a chaplain how do you initiate dialogue or yeah what what particularly do you do with um, people you see so i just sort of go in and i usually had two um the two trans units is three south four south and um i just you know i walk in and i'm just like hey chaplain does anyone want to talk and i let folks come to me um at this point i know most folks um they've been going for like a year and a half now and so there there are some people who have been there the entire time i've been working there um or volunteering there and then occasionally there are some new people who like will come out with the people I already know. And so then it sort of helps build relationships. If they, if they see half the unit come out, they're more likely to come out. Um, I almost always have to out myself though. Um, especially as a religious figure, if I walk in there like, Hey, I'm a chaplain, like let's talk. They're just like, get the fuck out. Like, no, so many of them are waiting for me to be like, you're going to hell or, like you want to talk about your life still, you know, like that sort of thing. And that's, that's what they've gotten a lot in the past, unfortunately, uh, with chaplains at DOC. I know more recently, um, Justin, who's like the head of spiritual care there is trying to sort of, uh, set higher standards for chaplains. So they can't just come in and like do these things and be homophobic or transphobic and cause harm. So that's happening less, but I think there's just like, probably always going to be a bit of an inherent distrust with religion and queer people just like broadly speaking um given the level of trauma a lot of folks in rosies have experienced i think it's you know I is think that hard for you um not not particularly because i have it too so i'm just kind of like hey no like i get it like i'm trans i'm not i'm not about to come in here and tell you there's something wrong with your life um I, I also don't press God that much. I'm, I feel like kind of a weird chaplain because, uh, like, God, um, 
So I feel like God is in all of my conversations, right? Like I feel the presence of God when I'm there, but like very rarely do we talk about God. Um, and if we do, it's usually uh, like via the Bible. So they're just like, how, like a lot of folks are like, how are you, a ch like, why are you doing this? Like they hate us. Um, and I like have that conversation with them about like why, like why that's sort of why I'm doing it and like why that's important to me. And then I also, um, something that's been really helpful for me is learning how to do exegetical work in the Bible. So that's when you look at it written in the original language, like the language is originally written in and you sort of do translation work uh, and you realize how paraphrased the bible is and like poorly translated and how so what language is that is it aramaic or is it so the old testament would be in um hebrew and then the new testament was written in greek and so uh, i've only personally done i've done the most sort of exegetical work with uh the new testament in greek but i've used other folks exegetical work um with the Old Testament in Hebrew. I'm just a little less familiar with it. And I'm I'm really not that great with the Greek either. There are like tools to help you do this so you don't have to like learn the whole language. Um, but it opens up a lot of different like avenues to like take some of the biblical stories. So like for example, there's a story, uh, you know, Joseph and the Technicolor dream coat. Uh, that dream coat um, in the original language it was written is only used in one other place and it's in like first samuel i think and that word um actually means like the like the dress of a virgin princess um so like why is joseph in a dress right or at least in some sort of feminine type robe um is this just because he's gay? Is this because he's a cross-dresser? Is this both? Is it neither? Is this a mistake? You know, or is it just, you know, like, lack of a better word? You know, like, what what is this about? Um, and so it does. it's not, like, definitive, but in many ways it, it, like, allows these avenues for, like, querying these Bible stories. And so I tell folks that, and they're just like, holy shit, so, like, that, like, Joseph could have been a trans woman, like, Joseph could have been a gay man, like, that, like, they, being able to see themselves in that way. I think everyone sort of knows Jonathan and David were sort of in love. That feels apparent to me even in the English. So I don't usually, I haven't like done exegetical work specifically around that. But, um, and there's like eunuchs come up a lot, which like isn't um, a bad thing for me. But I think people exclusively think of eunuchs as um, so AMAB folks, assigned male birth folks who are castrated. Um, and that's not exclusively always the case. Like sometimes, most often that was what they were, but it was it was also just people who could not fit expected gender roles. So uh, maybe that's like a woman who couldn't give birth or a man who didn't want to have sex with his wife or couldn't for some reason. Um, and so that's another place to see various forms uh of folks uh sort of gender or sexuality identities and so i try to i try to take that route but that's sort of so far has been the most like religious thing that i sort of do while i'm there i've 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 literally only been asked to pray for like to pray with someone and it was the same person they asked me like two or three times and i you know i prayed with them and that was fine um but it's not uh yeah, it doesn't it doesn't come up as often as I think people mm -hmm. people think. Um, mostly, what comes up is trauma, uh, and I think 
that becomes tricky for me because I'm very much like, okay, we're not going to spiritual use spiritual bypassing in this moment to deal with this. And so I don't immediately lean into like Jesus or God. Like if, if we arrive there, if the person brings it there, like I let it go there. Um, and maybe that'll change. Like maybe my approach will change. You know, I'm still, I'm still like very new at this, but yeah. So I, I feel, <laughs> I feel very weird that I have this like religious job um, cause I, I don't often feel like a very religious person. Mm. Um, well, it's a conduit to access other ways to engage with people on these other, like these deep levels. Um, so something that's been happening lately is media. They, they recently got a DVD player in there. Um, and you know, I was telling you prior to the interview that we have someone currently incarcerated who was in Paris's burning. And so we were able to get Paris's burning in there. And so some days it's just watching Paris's burning for the 500th time and listening to Miss um, Baker be like, I know this person, or, you know, this person was dead is dead now, or this person died this year and this person's in jail or, you know, and it's, it's really hard and it's really sad, but, um, it prompts a lot of conversation in the unit. So it's, I think it's a good way for this person to grieve, first of all. Mm. And also there are some younger trans folks who are like, this is our history. And like, there's our history is often a way that like we talk and we process, um, talking about balls is huge. Like we're, we're really trying to find a way to do some more programming around just like ballroom culture. Um, Cause that's, that's, they, they can just sit and talk about that for hours. And it, and it's, it's not just like for no, for no reason. Like it really, it brings life into the room. It brings joy into the room. It also brings a lot of grief into the room because so many people, um, in that community have died. Um, and so that, that's, I, I hate to say it, but I just feel like trauma is often like our history, which like by proxy has been very traumatic for a lot of these folks. And so, that's often how we get there. There are also, um, there are folks with like different faith backgrounds in there. So, uh, uh, I've met a couple of folks who practice Santeria and I'm less familiar with that, but, um, I think they almost kind of liked that cause then they got to like, tell me about it and like what it means to them. And I think those sort of conversations can be cathartic as well. Um, and recently there's been a request for um, more programming around Muslim, like queer-friendly Muslim or Islam-focused stuff. Uh, we're working to get that because that's hard. Specifically, it's been hard to get, uh, like, not transphobic, like, um, like clergy people. That's something we're really trying to, to get with. Um, but yeah, otherwise, like, I try to just use our lived experiences and our culture. We're going to be starting a, like, an eight or nine week group, um, like, trans only group, uh, and talking about, like, I'm planning to talk about, like, what's your relationship to masculinity? Like, what's your relationship to femininity? Uh, what is your relationship to androgyny or, um, to the gender roles attached to all of those or any of those, um. What is it like? What's your relationship to passing? Because unfortunately, something that happens a lot is uh, we don't always use our culture like uh, 
nicely so people will throw shade and like read each other and they can get like really 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 mm. mean really really quick um and when you're dealing with folks who have like i said experienced as much trauma like they don't always respond to that well like they're not always ready to be read or mm. and sometimes it's not even reading i guess i guess it's throwing shade but sometimes it just feels cruel to like and so we're, we're really working on that. Um, also, like, education stuff. So, like, I I work with a lot of incarcerated folks who are much older than me. Not all of them. And it's a very transient community because it's jail and not a prison. So some folks are in and out. Some folks are there for a while. Um, most of them are much older than me, though. So the culture is very different. And so things like non-binary, genderqueer, like, never heard of them. They don't really want to hear some, some of the folks really don't want to hear anything about it. Um, but it's been really liberating for other folks to like get that language and be like, this is why I'm like, I, like, I don't want to like go all the way or I don't want to do all of the things or have all the surgeries or this is why I'm on and off with hormones. Like this, there's like a real like identity around this and it's not just me being confused and I think that's happened for a couple of folks uh, and I think other folks are just like no you're just playing pretend like you're not really trans you're not really this and that's harmful and it has really uh heavy consequences that I don't think they realize so like when one of them decides to tell a CEO that like this person is pretending to be trans because they don't pass and because they didn't want to shave today. Like that can be really dangerous and that can result in this person getting thrown in a men's facility. And so um, right now we're really trying to work on education, but like education that like meets um, like our elders where they're at. Cause like, I also think, uh, you know, well, I have a very like, you know, I identify as genderqueer trans masculine and that's, they just like, they make fun of me for that all the time because they're just like, no, Ethan, you're just a man. Like, have you seen your beard? Whatever. Um, and they just, like, love to laugh at that. And I let them, and it doesn't bother me. But uh, I I don't want, like, all of these words and labels and identity to erase, like, their really, like, heavy lived experience and also a lived experience that, quite frankly, like, allowed me to have all these words attached to my gender and to be so specific. Um and so I, I'm really trying to, like, meet everyone where they're at. And that becomes really tricky when you want to make sure that, like, this person can be like, no, like, fuck you. I'm not I'm non-binary. And that's a real thing. While also, like, this person who's, you know, f- has been forced to be a sex worker for their whole life and, like, had to do, like, hormones from Australia, like like still feels like they their suffering was not for no reason, you know, Um and so, and I think education is what comes with that. We also were able to host the first um, Transgender Day of Remembrance in there uh, this year, which was just, like, really beautiful. And we were able to get trans women, trans men, some of the non-binary folks there, like, because um, usually they don't ever get to be together. Like, it's just, like, trans women here, and then I meet individually with trans men. And so getting to have them all together just in to be in community like that and just like people in all different places, like a couple trans guys who have had top surgery, a couple who 
are much older and never had the access to it and so it's kind of stopped trying and like just hearing them like talk and also hearing them grieve because that you know that specific event was about the folks we'd lost and so it was it was really emotional and also just like really beautiful to watch just so many different um just like aimed rages just like not fight each other at least for that day everyone everyone that came was like was being really respectful they were just like actually like learning about each other's experiences and that was that was really cool wow yeah wow (laughs) and um yeah while you're at union seminary um what other things have you learned that have influenced the way that you reflect on your yeah, sense of religion, sense of self, sense of um, community, or... Hmm. I guess, I mean, like, this feels very broad, but just, like, learning about liberation theology has been really important to me. Um, Getting, I didn't get to, uh, unfortunately, I didn't get to learn from Cohn, but, like, reading uh, Dr. Cohn's work was really important to me. Dolores William was really impactful for me. A lot of these are just like specifically black uh, liberation theologians. Um, there were some. There were some queer theology that was definitely impactful. It's been harder to get at that though, um, which is sort of that's just like on union. To be honest with you, uh, I guess. Yeah, I guess really, I feel, I feel like very basic for saying this, but for me, just like in a first year, just taking the Old Testament and the New Testament classes and just like, just like nitty gritty going through the whole Bible or, you know, like most of the Bible in a year, which is like really fast and really hard. It was a lot of work, but doing that, I I really think that that has been the, like my biggest takeaway. Um, And then obviously like, the connection to Rikers. Like, I, I got involved with Rikers because of my field work. Um, I also think the death and dying class I took was pretty helpful. Um, I wish it was a little... wish it was a little more updated. Just, it was essentially about dying old white people. And so, like, what does it mean when, um, like, that's not who's dying, you know? Just, like, we watch a lot of, like, Bill Moyer and, like, a couple, like, TV shows or, like not TV shows, but, like, episodes or something of them. I don't know. Um, and that was, like, hard because I'm really like, okay, what does it look like to be queer and to die, to be black and to die, to be poor and to die? Because all of the examples we were showing were of people who could, like, afford to buy, like, vans for their wheelchairs that they now had. A, and does that mean just end-of-life care? Like, what does to die uh, mean? It was context? both. It was, like, end-of-life care, and it was also, like, we talked a little bit about the grief process, um, stages of grief, uh, how how fluid grief is and how like you can think you're in the last stage and shoot back to the first and Mm -hmm. it's you know like there it's just not linear in any way and that that feels like such a that feels like such a like Campbell's soup quote but like that was like really really helpful for me um just really understanding like grief is not linear like it's different for everybody and sometimes it's forever you know Mm -hmm. um and that's that's okay as long as I think 
you're able to function. Uh, something that this feels weird, but like something that was actually really important and, and impactful for me was uh, the suicide pact that I learned about there, which is if you're working with a client who is expressing thoughts of suicide, you sort of make a written contract with them or you, you ask them to promise you that they're not going to hurt themselves until they speak with a therapist, at least like you speak with a trained professional, at least one more time. Um, and this was important to me because it really, so like, I, I'm like really big on autonomy. And um, while I hope no one ever chooses suicide, it, I think it is a choice that a person gets to make. And I think it's a, it's a choice that only a person can make for themselves, right? And so I, uh, for me, uh, I, I never knew how I was going to deal with that. Like when, you know, like professionally when that, when that arose and I had a lot of anxieties around it, um, especially because I know suicide and thoughts of suicide and suicide attempts are very common among queer people. And I knew that was probably the population of people I wanted to work with. Um, and this pact allows for choice to be left with the person, um, but a little bit of like responsibility to not be on me. Although in those situations, like I am like mandated reporter. So given the context, I'd have to tell somebody, which is something that I would, I always disclose first, right? Like I, I, people know that like, if you tell me you're going to hurt yourself, I have to tell somebody. Mm -hmm. So just know that. Um, and then folks will still tell me and I'll, and I'll do this with them and I'll be like, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna set up an appointment with like, in this case, like with Rosie's, I'll tell the therapist and I'll be like, Hey, you need to meet with this person. Like they expressed this to me. Um, we did a suicide pact. I don't think they're going to harm themselves, but you, you know, it is urgent sort of thing. Um, and that, I think, I don't know why, but that was just like, that was just like a tool that I was like, oh my God, thank God I have this. Um, and like, maybe it doesn't work. Maybe they lie to you and they still do it. But I think the, the, I've only, I've only done it twice. Um, and both times I felt very confidently that they would very, they were very much going to wait and speak with someone before they made any sort of choice. And there's no real way to know that, which is why you still have to like tell somebody usually, but, um. Yeah, and I learned that in the death and dying class. Um, but yeah, I did wish it was a little bit more intersectional. Um, it's just like death. Death doesn't look like the video clips we were watching, you know? Like, death looks like, how are we going to pay for the funeral? Like, and also just learning the literal, like, okay, someone dies. Now what do we do? Like, like what is step one when someone has died? Like, who do you call first? Like, if you don't have money, what does that look like? Um, what does that look like? hard uh, and sometimes if I'm remembering correctly sometimes it could be like harder to get the body back if you don't have like the money for it or something um yeah it was it was just like calling you know calling 911 first and then like calling a funeral home making getting the arrangements to be brought over there and then like if you don't have that money I feel like there was just sort of this like I should I should refresh myself now I feel like there was uh like there was just like a waiting area where like the I'm, I'm assuming the body's just like kept at the morgue until you can like afford to do that which is like i know they're not there anymore but that feels so like horrible or like what does it mean for like a homeless person to die and if they don't have family like where is their body kept mm. how long you know like those those are the sort of questions i was always coming at this with because mm. i don't um particularly want to help like 
wealthy, rich white people die. Not, not, you know, you deserve to die well too, but like you can afford to die well. And I sort of know that like my, my concern is the people who like don't have that luxury to like afford a comfortable, easy death. And like, what does it mean to alleviate suffering in those circumstances? Um, and I haven't had to deal with death too much cause I'm like real squirrely around death. I'm like, not nah, I, like a huge part of why I went to jail work. I mean, it's where my interests were, but it was also because like I didn't want to go to hospice or to a hospital, uh, which I'll have to I'll have to do probably next year. Um, I can't avoid it forever, but I at that point I was like, I'm not ready. I'm still so so terrified of this death thing. Mm-hmm. And we're gonna just leap from the subject um, mm-hmm. just to get back to like where you're at now and your experience of living in New York and being trans, like how would you, um, yeah, answer some of the questions that you kind of post in the groups or in a group that you will be leading in terms of like your relationship to passing or relationship to masculinity, any, any of those questions within there that you would want to elaborate? Um, so yeah, it's really interesting because my my relationship to masculinity is weird. So is my relationship to femininity. Um, it's weird because I I feel like I'm finally able. Uh, I I have this understanding of myself as like a gender queer person that is not male, that is not female, but um, specifically feels like I use that word because I, it makes me feel like, or I use it because I feel like. There is not yet language to describe how I feel about my gender, but I feel like I wanted to look like this, which is pretty masculine, but I wanted to look like this so I could become feminine from this point um, versus from the like AFAB starting point, um, which I feel like for some folks, you know, folks who are not queer makes no sense. They're like, why would you not want to do that? Um, when you could have just done that when you were a girl, so to speak. Um, but that's, that's sort of where I'm at with it. And I say that, and I also don't often do that because I started to a little bit and it got like really scary really quick. Um, so I had spent like like three or four years looking like this I, I I kind of just transitioned and looked like this really quickly so my beard wasn't as thick as it is now but like I got a beard very quickly my voice was already pretty deep I I was very lucky I suppose um so I mean lucky in the sense that like there is safety and privilege and power and passing especially when I look like a white man right and I I definitely want to like name and acknowledge that but it's also been like kind of an isolating experience for me because like I don't in my head like I am not a man um and I actually have more trouble convincing people that I'm trans than I do um like whatever the other situation would be where I'm outed um like usually it's like I have to give someone my ID and my ID still says female and it sort of has to forever so I give them that and they're just like you stole this and I'm just like well I didn't and we just have to get past this point for you to like understand this um and it's it's put me in some like really scary situations. Uh, when I was in Cleveland, I had I had like two cops like make me lift my shirt up and show them my scars. Mm-hmm. That happened actually shortly after I moved to New York City too. I was like going to buy some wraps at the corner store at the bodega, and 
they were like, I can't, I can't sell you these. Like, this is a fake ID. I'm like, it's not fake. I'm just trans. Like, just give me the wraps. And they, like, wouldn't, and they wouldn't. And they're just like, prove it. And I was just like, and in that moment, I felt like they probably were like, you know, like, show me what's between your legs is, I think, probably what they meant. But I just lifted up my shirt and, like, sh- I, like, showed them my, like, incision scars. And they were just like, oh, wow, okay, like, here you go, like, my bad. Um, and that's, that's, that's happened, like, twice, I think. Uh, and so it's weird because it's, like, they they really don't think I'm trans and they're, they really just think I'm lying. So I get, like, the thing with the cops in Cleveland happened because I, I think I was trying to cash... A check for my partner or something and I like something didn't match and it was like something to do with my partner's name was awesome so they thought I was like trying to cash mm-hmm. like a stolen check and I had a stolen ID and all of this stuff and I was just like that is like this is that is not what's happening <laughs> like this is not what's happening here and it just got like out of control and then the bank called the cops and it was just like this whole thing um and so it's like hard but then when I got to New York, I was like, okay, like, I'm not in Ohio anymore. Like, I will, um, maybe I will try to, like, dress a little bit more feminine here. And I wore, like, a da- I wore a dangly earring once, and I literally immediately got called a faggot um, at my school. Like, my dog sort of, like, hopped up on someone, and they were like, get your dog, faggot. And I was just like, okay. Like, if I, I just, like, I have one dangly earring in, and, like, all of a sudden, like, people just, like, couldn't handle it. Um and I kept, I kept wearing it for a little while, and then people started asking me if I was, like, I just, like, the circles I'm in, they're always asking, like, pronouns and stuff. And so, I you know, I would tell them, or, like, they would ask because they saw the earring, and so then they were like, oh, I don't know, which is, like, valid, and that's fine. But, like, I realized a lot of people thought I was a trans woman, and it, I just was, like, having these, like, really disorienting experiences, um, and they were, like, like kind of more aggressive than they had ever been before like and it it was weird and I was probably very much um like underprepared for it because my transition had been so I don't want to say easy because like I, I actually dealt with some like very like violent things when I first started like people were like carving shit into my car and like where was that? Uh, in Rochester, and I still I still don't know who it who it was. I I thought it was possibly um some cousins that had lived that were like living in the area i am i no longer really think that that's the case so I, I don't know who it was but like people just like carving like slurs into my car mm. um but i was like just started my transition so it felt like that's what it you know like it seemed like obvious or like that's what it was about um but then it kind of like leveled out in terms of like day to day experiences like that. Like I got fired for being trans a couple times, and I still had these like institutional hiccups. But like I could walk around, and like no one really fucked with me because I I just looked like a white man. Um, and so I got like that was nice, you know. And then I was like, hey, like I figured out that I'm not a man, and I figured out that I want this. And I tried to, like, lean into that, and then it got, like, really aggressive and really scary, like, really quickly. And I just, like, kind of stopped. Um, And it was shitty, and I definitely want to, like, at some point go back, or not go back, but, like, continue to explore my relationship with femininity from, like, this place. Um, But now I have a kid, Mm -hmm. um, and it's a kid who 
also like argues with me about being trans because he's just like you're not trans like you're just a boy and i'm like i just i don't know how to explain this to you dude like i think he gets it now um because we're homeschooling him and we're doing health and so we we just got through a puberty book and we went through like puberty for people with penises and puberty for people with vaginas and how there are intersex folks and all these gray areas and so i think he's thoroughly confused now but i think he understands like i am not a boy in the way he is a boy um but this has been a really difficult time for him and it feels a little feels a little selfish but also just like a little unnecessary in this moment to like put that on him and also like what is it going to mean when i'm walking around with like a little boy and I'm, and I look like people can't tell what I am anymore, you know? And like, I, I do worry about like the safety of him and like, like, I don't want to, I don't want someone to like call me a faggot in front of him or to like, um, you know, just like put us in a dangerous situation. And so now I'm, I'm kind of like a little bit more hesitant of it and a little bit worried about it. Um, my partner's starting to about to start their transition, their like medical side of their transition specifically. And so like, I kind of feel like my, that's sort of where my attention is right now. And I'm like, okay with that. I don't feel like I'm like stifling myself, you know, like I know who I am. My partner knows who I am and like holds that side of me like fully. And, uh, you know, the, the friends that are close to me, I think know that about me, but there's also, I've had a lot of instability and I'm trying to like make sure I have like a stable place before I, cause it was just, yeah, it was, it was like overnight. Like I put an earring on and like everybody lost their fucking mind. And I was like, I don't like, and these are strangers or yeah, this was just like a UPS dude. Um, like a delivery dude just like did that. Um, and then I just get like, I was on the train once with an earring and some dude just like started el like elbow checking me and kicking me and like in a way that I was just like oh you know like my bad like I wasn't you know like I ran into you or I didn't mean to type of thing and then I realized like it was just like very intentional and then like I went to get off and he was like, like fucking faggot and um you know I just got mm -hmm. to be like a really invisible white man for a couple years and then I decided I wanted to let myself like be who I like more fully am and I just got like really violent and aggressive response to that and so I was kind of like I I am not ready for that um and yeah I sort of like pumped the brakes and you know I, I like I, I hope to go back to that soon and I hope to be able to explore that but I really I just want like my godson to feel stable and sort of understand what's going on and I want specifically to help him process my partner mm -hmm. transitioning right now because like that's going to be I think I think that's going to be more difficult on him than my transition was because he was a baby mm -hmm. and I just was like became a dyke pretty quickly after he was born so I always looked kind of masculine I was always kind of boyish to him and so it feels very normal um yeah it was it was really scary it was like really and it was just it was a lot and I think a lot of it is like I people see me and I mean like I look like a lumberjack you know like I look like this big burly man and I think people very much expect a socialization and an experience that I never had and so like when a dude begins to get aggressive I 
Like, I don't respond in this, like, expected masculine way. And people are like, what are you, like, why are you acting that way? You're like, you're a big dude. Like, deal with this man. And I'm like, I cannot. Like, I have literally never been in a physical altercation with anybody except my cousin. And I was, like, 10, you know? Like, so I don't... Uh, and I don't think that that's what it necessarily means to be a man either, um, but most of society does. And so I'm in a lot of situations where people, I think people just think I'm really gay at this point because they're, they're just like, wow, you really are just like not the man that I thought you were. Like, you don't have the relationship to masculinity that I thought you did. And I think they just assume I'm like, like a gay boy, which is sort of, I guess, the direction that my life is going in in this moment. Um but yeah, it's, it's weird mm. for sure. And I'm sure you're really busy, but are there places in New York that you go out to have fun? Not particularly. Although my partner is really in, uh, my partner wants to get into ballroom stuff. And so my godson's going home for like 10 days over Christmas break. Uh, and we're hoping to like try to go to a ball during that. Cause my mm. partner, my partner really wants to get into that. Um, I, I also go to Sylvia Rivera Law Project sometimes, um, and that's been, like, really awesome. Like, that that was, like, really, um, like, meeting, I don't know if you know, like, meeting folks like Sasha and Kimberly, uh, Adelaide. Like, that, that was really, like, life-giving to me because I know we're in a really, like, big queer city, but it's, it's also, like, a very lonely city if you don't like know where to go or who to talk to or how to get involved mm-hmm. in those things. And so a lot of my work... Uh, with trans folks at Rikers has led me to these like outside queer spaces and so I feel like I'm just starting to like get into that Uh, I also live with fibromyalgia so like commuting is like not like a fun experience for me Um, there are days where it's like really hard to walk or move around and so I'm kind of like I just want a car and I don't want to do all this anymore but uh, slowly getting getting uh more accustomed with like different events and things i know again it's also i hate that it's like always it's always like around grief um but uh Lailene polanco died this summer in rikers um and she she was put in solitary and uh had a seizure and she wasn't being monitored and she died and she was left to die and after that there were a lot of protests and stuff and um i started that's sort of when i started getting involved with like silver Rivera law project and meeting folks like at the protest and um bringing in folks for the resource fair the lgbtq resource fair at rikers um sort of prompted me to reach out to some other organizations and so that's that's been like a really big way that i've just like then like I need to find this community and I also need to find this community. So when these people are released, like I can tell them like, go to this place, talk to these people. There are queer folks here. Um, and so I've sort of learned about stuff like that. Mm. Wow. So is there anything else you'd like to share? I don't think so. Uh, well, thank you, Ethan. Yeah, thank you. This is this is really fun. I think this is a really cool project. I'm glad that you are that y'all are doing this.